So obviously we had an undercover agent who was meeting face-to-face with him. So while we were listening to him talk, um, our undercover agent said, so, you know, brother, what do you want to do for the cause? And so we had actually offered him options. You, you can pray, you know, five times a day and be a devout Muslim. You can offer money. You know, you can raise money for the brothers overseas. You can um, write things. You know, you can write videos. You can, you know, make videos and, and write propaganda. Or you can be operational. And so we wanted to make sure that, you know, there was a a whole broad range of things he could do for the brothers. And immediately he said he wanted to be operational. And so when the undercover agent asked, what does it mean to be operational to you? And that's when he told us, well, I would probably like to take a truck full of explosives, go to a crowded area and detonate it. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. The podcast that makes your law enforcement dreams happen. Welcome to the Go Law Enforcement Podcast, brought to you by GoLawEnforcement.com. I'm your host, Joe Lebowski. If you're looking for a job in law enforcement, GoLawEnforcement.com has the largest listing of law enforcement job openings. The requirements to be a police officer are different for every state. To find out if you meet the requirements to be a police officer in your state, take a short three-question quiz by going to golawenforcement.com forward slash quiz. That's golawenforcement.com forward slash quiz. In November of 2010, Mohammed Osman Mohammed attempted to set off a bomb at the annual Christmas tree lighting ceremony in downtown Portland, Oregon. It was an event attended by thousands. FBI Supervisory Special Agent Elvis Chan leads one of five FBI cyber squads and was the undercover specialist on the case. Agent Chan discusses the investigation and how FBI agents worked undercover to prevent a tragedy from occurring. Supervisory Special Agent Elvis Chan, welcome to the Go Law Enforcement Podcast. I'm very glad to be here, Joe. And you lead a cyber unit with the FBI. Yes, that's correct. I run one of five cyber squads for FBI San Francisco. What did you do before you got into law enforcement? I actually worked as an engineer in the semiconductor industry for 12 years before I joined the Bureau. Was getting into law enforcement was something that you always wanted to do? That's a funny question, Joe. It was actually never on my mind to, to join law enforcement. It was actually one of my friends at my previous job. We, we, we both used to make computer chips, and it was always his goal to join the FBI, but you need three years of work experience. So he worked at the company that I was at for three years, and then he said, Elvis, I'm going to go join the FBI. And I told him he was crazy, and then he went to the FBI Academy and he called me from there and he said, Elvis, this is the most fantastic job. You have to come. This is something that you would really enjoy. So then I, I molded over. I talked with my wife. She said, you know, you're not getting any younger Elvis, so go ahead and put in for it. And a year later, I was at the FBI Academy. 
And when you got into that profession, since you weren't planning on it, was it kind of what you envisioned? It was actually more than I'd envisioned. So I'd always been drawn to civil service. I'd always wanted to find some way to serve my country. My mom was not like, I, I thought I wanted to go into the military. My mom said, you cannot go into the military. She, you know, she was worried for my safety. And so she, she really deterred me from that. But, you know, I become an adult. I, you know, I'm, I'm a grown person and I'm working in the industry for 12 years, in the tech industry for 12 years. And it was a good job, but there was always just something missing. And I think what was missing was the, the public servant aspect of, of what I have in my current job. What is the FBI's role in cyber? So our role is actually a president, Presidential Policy Directive 41 designates the FBI as the lead federal agency for any significant data breach. And so our job is to actually, when there's a large breach that happens, like at Equifax most recently. So all, as you can imagine, lots of federal agencies are involved, but the FBI is kind of the traffic cop. We're the lead agency. We're responsible for trying to figure out who committed the hack. And then we're also responsible for coordinating the efforts of all of the other government agencies who might be involved. Working in a cyber squad, I'm sure a lot of people have different ideas as far as what that is. Can, can you explain what your squad does? Yeah, absolutely. So as you're aware, the FBI has lots of different types of squads that work uh, different violations. We have terrorism squads, we have espionage squads, we have criminal squads. So our cyber squads, we are specifically focused on hackers. So we are um, charged with catching hackers, the ones who break into companies and steal information. So as you can imagine, the Equifax hack, the Yahoo hack, uh, the OPM hack, all of these, it's our job to figure out who did the hacking and to try to bring them to justice. Can you give me examples of, of the wide variety of cases that would fall under that? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, um, the Yahoo hack, so our squad actually was in charge of that investigation. As you're aware, in 2014, Yahoo had a severe data breach and they lost at least half a billion users worth of information. So our squad did all of the digital forensics, we did lots of interviews, and we were able to figure out that it was two Russian intelligence officers and two hackers for hire who did that hack and stole all of that information. And so we were able to prove it and we brought it to a grand jury and we were able to get an indictment on those four individuals. So that, that's a perfect example of the kind of work we do. In cyber, how common is it where your suspects are located outside the United States? That's a very good question. I would say in most cases, actually for my squad in particular, all of our subjects are located overseas. Um, in, on cyber criminal squads, um, sometimes you get people in the U.S. and we definitely can reach out and touch those people. But I, I would say most of the hackers that we go after are overseas. Do you have much recourse when you have a, a suspect who's located outside the U.S.? It really depends on the country where they're located. So as you can imagine, in a country like Russia or China, where we don't have extradition treaties with, um, those people are more difficult to get to. But in uh, Western European, most Asian countries, we do have extradition treaties and we can get to them. But even for those countries where we don't have extradition treaties, what works in our favor is they eventually like to travel and they like to go on vacation. And so those places where they like to go on vacation, like Singapore or Cyprus or the Maldives, they typically have extradition treaties with us. 
There's a lot of TV shows, detective shows that focus on cyber. What are some of the common misconceptions that the public has about cyber investigations? I think the number one misconception they have is how fast it happens. So if you watch like an episode of Cyber CSI, you know, within a one hour episode, they've typically solved the crime. The unfortunate thing is, even though we have all of this digital evidence, it will typically take us weeks, if not months, to be able to follow all the digital breadcrumbs to be able to figure out how the hack happened. And even when we figure out how the hack happened, it's really tough a lot of times to figure out who specifically did the hack, you know, to actually put an identity of the person, the hands behind the keyboard, as it were. That's probably the biggest one. There seems to be kind of an explosion in the cryptocurrency realm, Bitcoin for one. How has that affected cyber? So it's definitely a problem for us. As you can imagine, all of the cyber criminals that we are investigating, they all use some form of digital currency. And the good or bad thing about digital currency is the good news is there's a public ledger. So there is a public way to be able to keep track of all of the digital currency transactions. Unfortunately, there are other services, they're called tumblers or mixers, uh, that have private ledgers. So they are able to launder money, you know, mix, mix up the money and then send it into different streams so that it's really hard for us to track where the money is going. So we need a lot of smart people. We need computer scientists and, and researchers to help us figure out how to track the money. That's probably the most difficult thing about how it impacts us is that they all use the money and then it's up to us to figure out how they launder it and to be able to trace the money back to the bad guys. In November of 2010, Mohammed Osman Mohammed attempted to set off a bomb at the annual Christmas tree lighting ceremony in downtown Portland. An event attended by thousands. FBI Supervisory Special Agent Elvis Chan was the undercover specialist on the case. The individual's name is Mohammed Osman Mohammed. He was a Portland citizen who immigrated from Somalia. He was actually going to Oregon State University, and he was a student there, and he had actually, unfortunately, gotten involved with some, some radical people in the Portland area. It was actually his parents that uh, tipped us off to him. They were very concerned because, as I mentioned, he was, um, he's a Muslim, and he was going to a mosque where uh, some very radical militant um, people were. And we were actually investigating a couple of these other people. And so his own parents were worried that he was getting radicalized. And so they were very worried that he wanted to travel overseas and, and join the jihad. So they actually tipped the FBI Portland office to his intentions. The FBI wanted to get a sense of Mohammed Osman Mohammed's intent, so they did a series of interviews with him. So they conducted a, a series of interviews just to get an assessment of how serious he was about his situation and if he really had the intent or motivation to go overseas. What he had said was he had said that he'd wanted to go overseas to learn Arabic and to get more in touch with his Muslim roots. 
I think the thing that made us the most suspicious was he had had friends who were already on the FBI's radar, and a couple of them had already traveled overseas, and they were actually known to be with uh, AQAP, Al-Qaeda, in the Arabian Peninsula. So that was of great concern to us. So the next step in the investigation is they do their due diligence, they run a bunch of data checks, they try to uh, interview other people around him to see if they can figure out, if any of his associates or friends are aware of his intentions to go overseas. And then after a while, they actually got uh, electronic surveillance upon some of his accounts. From electronic surveillance, the FBI learned about communication that Mohammed Osman Mohammed was having with an individual that was very concerning to the FBI. He was in contact with people, at least one person who was known to be with AQAP. And so that was very concerning to us. And so the interesting thing is I had actually met the case agent. He had come down to FBI San Francisco from Portland to take a training class. Uh, we're a very large office, and so we have lots of conference rooms where we can hold trainings. And so I actually met him in February of 2010, and he knew that I was a specialist in running undercover operations because that's a pretty administratively burdensome uh, type of thing to do in the FBI. So he reached out to me for guidance, and then after that, we were off to the races. So the next step was to make online contact with them. And so we were aware that he was in contact with someone that we knew to be in Yemen. And so that person had gone black. That meant that uh, his associate who was in Yemen was not on the internet at all. No communications at all with him. No email, no text, no nothing. And so we took a risk when we decided to make an email address very similar to his and then to reach back to Mr. Mohammed. And so that was the start. Yeah, so we said that we were an associate of his friend who was in Yemen. And so we started corresponding with him, trying to vet him out, trying to see what his intentions were to see if he had the same type of motivation as his friend did who had traveled to Yemen. He was very suspicious at the beginning, which he should have been, and he was trying to figure out who this person was, who this associate was. But the, the good thing is our undercover agent, the actual person who was engaging with him online, you know, we had all the research from the investigation. So we were able to, to say that you know, we were aware of his brother, we knew where his brother was in Yemen, and that we were trying to vet him out to figure out if he should travel to Yemen or not. And so at that point, we thought it was a good opportunity to set up a face-to-face -face meeting. So uh, Mr. Mohammed actually wanted it to happen at the mosque, but we didn't want it to be in a, a situation where we couldn't control. So we had suggested that it be in the lobby of a, a, a large hotel. And so he agreed to that, and that's where the first meeting happened. So the FBI sets up a meeting with the undercover agent and Mohammed Osman Mohammed in the lobby of a hotel. They're trying to determine what the intentions are of Mr. Mohammed. So obviously we had an undercover agent who was meeting face-to-face -face with him. I was actually about 
20 yards away in the same hotel lobby so that I could listen to what they were saying and then provide, you know, some level of security in case things went bad. So while we were listening to him talk, um, our undercover agent said, so, you know, brother, what do you want to do for the cause? And so we had actually offered him options. You, you can pray, you know, five times a day and be a devout Muslim. You can offer money. You know, you can raise money for the brothers overseas. You can um, write things. You know, you can write videos. You can, you know, make videos and, and write propaganda. Or you can be operational. And so we wanted to make sure that, you know, there was a, a whole broad range of things he could do for the brothers. And immediately he said he wanted to be operational. And so when the undercover agent asked, what does it mean to be operational to you? And that's when he told us, well, I would probably like to take a truck full of explosives, go to a crowded area and detonate it. So you can imagine like this person had never met our undercover agent before, had only spoken with him online. I, I nearly fell out of my chair when I heard him say that on the, on the transmitter. So needless to say, we were stunned after that first meeting. And so our undercover agent told him, you think about it, you know, like whatever you want to do, brother, you know, we're, we're here to support you. However, you figure out what you actually want to do. So it was between the first and the second meeting where uh, Mr. Muhammad actually uh, did some research. And he said, you know, like, he was the one who told us after he did research that he wanted to do the Christmas tree lighting ceremony on Black Friday in downtown Portland. It's a very large event. So downtown Portland is a very nice downtown, and they have a very good city square. And that city square for the Christmas tree lighting ceremony typically holds between fifteen to 20,000 people. There's a lot of kids and a lot of families really enjoy it. It's a part of the tradition of being in Portland. The FBI now had a situation where Mohammed Osman Mohammed had declared his intentions of setting off a bomb at the annual Christmas tree lighting ceremony in downtown Portland. The FBI needed to determine, was he all talk or was he intent on doing this act? I think, at least from my perspective, I was very stunned. But we, we needed to figure out, okay, is he just all talk or is he really want to do this? So the next series of meetings was to, to constantly figure out, are you really serious about doing this? Because there are other things you can do. You know, if you don't want to do this, we're not going to look poorly on you. You can just, you know, walk away or, you know, we, you can help us raise money or you can just say your five, five prayers a day. But he was very intent on it. And so... Um, we figured if you're intent on it, then you actually have to be serious about it. So what are the things you think we need to do? And so he told us, well, I need to do reconnaissance. And so he was able to do research and find good places to park a truck bomb. He also looked at all of the traffic cameras that were around downtown Portland so he could figure out, you know, where the traffic patterns were and where the police might be. And then he, he said, well, what do you need from me, brothers? And we said, well, it's very difficult to buy bomb-making parts. Is that something that you're willing to do? And so he actually bought a lot of the components that were used to make uh, what would be a, a, an inert bomb. These are things that you could buy at the regular Home Depot store. So these are wires, these are switches, these are timers. These are the types of things that you could buy in any hardware store. 
So what happened was our first undercover agent, his persona was as a financier and a facilitator. So his expertise was not in bomb making. And when it became clear that Mr. Mohammed wanted to make a, a improvised explosive device, we had to bring in a second undercover agent. And so the persona of this second undercover agent was as a specialist in making bombs. Yeah, so they actually put together parts of the bomb. So the easier parts, like the timing components of the bomb, and you know, so that they could use actually the components that were purchased by Mr. Mohammed. So those pieces were put together. And then uh, our second undercover agent said, you know, the other brothers and I will, will put together the rest of this bomb because, you know, we need to do it in a secret location. The FBI put together a bomb just like the type which would be used with truck bombs. But missing one key component. So it would have been a working bomb instead of, so there was actually six 55 pound plastic barrels. This is, and it was configured in a way where you would see a truck bomb used by Al-Qaeda in Iraq, except instead of actual fertilizer explosives, which would have been in those 55-gallon containers, we just put dirt and water so that it had the sloshy feeling of an actual, you know, car bomb, but it was completely inert. About a month before the Christmas tree lighting ceremony, the FBI built an actual working improvised explosive device, a bomb, and met with Mohammed Osman Mohammed. So right before the event, so this is the meeting before Black Friday. It was a month before. And so what we had done actually was we said, okay, this is a smaller version of the bomb. We're going to test this, and we wanted to see if he was like very serious about this. So what we did was we actually drove into the backwoods of uh, Oregon, close uh, halfway in between Portland and the Oregon coast. And so it was this very remote location and we had to have the county sheriffs like block off of the roads. And what we did was we had a smaller improvised, an actual improvised explosive device. We gave him uh, one of the cell phones that he had purchased and we drove to another location and we said, okay, call the number to detonate the bomb. So he called a number. What it actually did was that called the number of a bomb technician who manually set off an explosive device. It went boom. And so then our undercover agent said, hey, that's like one-tenth of the explosion that's going to happen in downtown Portland. Is that something you're cool with? Like there's going to be family, there's going to be children there. He said, and he said, absolutely. This is going to be a beautiful thing. You know, the infidels have been attacking all of our people. So this is justice. And so after that, we knew it was on. And so we actually did uh, on two days before Black Friday, they did a dry run with undercover agents where he took them to the location where he wanted them to park And then what they were going to do was park the truck bomb and then walk off to a remote location and then detonate it. So they did all of that a couple of days before Black Friday. The funny thing was uh, we had had surveillance on him at night, you know, just trying to figure out where he was going to be. So it, it was funny on, as you're aware, uh, people are starting to do their Christmas shopping earlier. So there's a 
outlet shopping mall that's south of Portland, and it was actually open at midnight. And so the surveillance team told us he had gone with friends to eat dinner that night, and then they had driven down to um, the shopping outlets to go shopping. So he shopped and he bought some new clothes because the game plan was he was you know going to detonate the bomb and then you know go off to Mexico with the brothers and then from there make their way to Yemen. So he went shopping, he bought some new clothes, he bought a new puffy jacket and some shirts. And so obviously our, our folks were, you know, on, on pins and needles at the time. It is Black Friday. In a few hours, thousands of people will be gathering in downtown Portland for the annual Christmas tree lighting ceremony. There will be families, many with small children. The day of the, the meet, you know, he had new clothes and he had purchased um, hard hats and, you know, like the fluorescent construction vest, because that was going to be the ruse for why they were driving this big van around during the Christmas, ahead of the Christmas tree lighting. And so um, they met with the guys, they, then two undercover agents, and then they, they, you know, they just talked through another dry run. And then after that, they just sat there until um, it was close to the Christmas tree lighting ceremony. And so I think the plan was uh, the Christmas tree lighting ceremony was going to happen after the sun went down, and they wanted to make sure the van was at the location an hour beforehand because, you know, the traffic would be really bad. So they went. One of the undercover agents, he had the getaway car, and he was parked at an industrial parking lot, which was, I don't know, maybe a mile and a half, two miles away from the Christmas tree lighting ceremony. And then the undercover agent, who was the bomb-making expert, uh, drove with him, and they parked the, the van, and they went to the uh, other location where the other undercover agent was. And from there, he uh, he made the call. Instead of a bomb going off, it lit a light in the van, and we had a camera on the light so that it could show that he had actually tried to call the bomb. Obviously, the bomb didn't go off. He made a second phone call, and we registered that, too. And then after that, after he made the second phone call, our SWAT guys swooped in and arrested him. I think he was very disappointed. I was actually in the van right next to uh, the car where they were parked. And so um, the look that registered on his face was massive disappointment in that the bomb didn't actually go off. If he were actually able to detonate a bomb like that, um, it would have probably killed at least half of the people who were there. Um, one of the other things, uh, he was frustrated with how slow it was for us to um, get the bomb put together. He had also suggested, maybe I'll just rent a van and drive through, you know, um, the, the square while, during the Christmas tree lighting. And we, we said, no, 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 don't do that. So obviously we <laughs> wouldn't be able to control that situation at all, but um, we were able to, to talk him out of that situation. So he was charged with attempted, attempting to detonate a weapon of mass destruction. The jury came back in less than six hours and found him guilty. After the appeals process, he was actually sentenced to 30 years. So th this was a big deal for the FBI because, as you're aware, we've run many similar types of sting operations. This is the first one to actually go to trial. I, I think they felt like they had a, a more sympathetic um, 
area in the Pacific Northwest, which tends to be, you know, more progressive politically leaning. And, you know, from the jury actually returning a verdict in less than six hours, that, that let you know that the FBI had done its job and, and had put all the evidence together. Thousands of people enjoyed the annual Christmas tree lighting ceremony in downtown Portland that year. A horrific tragedy was avoided. For somebody who's interested in in going into law enforcement, working in cyber, what can they do to prepare themselves for that career? What I actually tell people to do is they they should find um, a major, a college major that they would like, whether it be in computer science or in information technology or information management, and then actually get a job in the tech sector and see how they like that. And if they like that, then I think they would definitely like uh, working as a cyber agent in the Bureau. If somebody's already in law enforcement, maybe they're working patrol, but they've always been interested in working cyber, anything that they can do to kind of help uh, maneuver into that field? Yeah, definitely. I think there are lots of different courses that are short of college-level courses. There are lots of certification programs that community colleges, that local universities can offer. And so, you know, I think a beat cop who is working patrol might be able to take night classes to take different types of cybersecurity courses or information systems courses to see if this is something they would be interested in. Well, Supervisory Special Agent Chan, thank you for being on the Go Law Enforcement Podcast. I really appreciate your time, Joe. Thank you very much. If you're looking for a job in law enforcement, check out the largest listing of law enforcement jobs on golawenforcement.com to help you get that law enforcement job you want and deserve. We put together a special guide for you. Seven inside tips to get a law enforcement job fast. You can get the guide for free just by going to jobtipsnow.com. That's jobtipsnow.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.